Welcome to Pushing Through. I am Tate Frazier, and as always, I am joined by the kid, BJ Armstrong. And today, our guest is from the Charlotte Observer. He's a sports reporter. He covered BJ back in the day when he was on the Charlotte Hornets. We'll get to all that. Rick Bennell, thank you for joining Pushing Through. I know Beej is going to laugh when I say this, but I'm very serious. If you ask me to name the five most interesting, honest, smart people I have covered in 30-some years of doing this, Mm. He doesn't make a look. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> I I so appreciated. Rick Buecher told me this when Beach came to the Hornets. I would really appreciate both BJ's honesty and how articulate he is. And mm. what, 20 years later, we're still friends. Mm. Oh, Rick, mm. that, that's very kind of you. And we would have great conversations. You know, we wouldn't talk about basketball. We would be talking about yeah all types of things and I've always appreciated and uh, always happy and proud to call you a friend. And again, thank you for coming on Mark. Thank you for coming on my friend. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, we need to get into uh, some conversation, right? We'll talk about that period of time when you were covering BJ, cause we just saw the last dance Rick that came out this summer, the, the cultural phenomenon BJ was obviously in it and talked about his experiences, you know, playing with Michael. And then after the fact, we go to 1998. Do you remember covering that Hornets team? Do you remember that series? Did it stick out to you like it did the documentary? Because it seemed like it stuck out to Michael in his mind. Uh, what was well, it like covering that moment? Obviously, the you know the the documentary rang some bells as opposed to something I could have just pulled out of the, the air. Mm. But it was really funny. Um, I had no idea that BJ just having a good game in Chicago and getting excited about it. I did not know what a, you know, what a, like a false, you know, big deal that became. We really didn't know it at the time, you know, that Michael had used that to get all, you know, jazzed up. But here's what's interesting. When I talked to BJ a couple of days before the first episode of the documentary, I went to our photo editor and I said, is there any chance that it in hell that somewhere in our photo archive, we have a picture of Beach in a Hornets uniform against the Bulls. Mm. Lo and behold, Jeff Siner, our tremendous sports photographer, Beach, you, have you seen this picture? We have a I picture have of you guarding Michael with this insanely fierce look on your face from that playoff series. Well, send that I to ask you. I want to ask you, have you ever been more jazzed than you were that week? You mean after that game or? I'm saying the idea, the opportunity to play the Bulls after playing for them for so long. Mm. I didn't necessarily grasp at the time just how fired up you were. How, on a scale of one to 10, what were your emotions like that week? Mm. God, that's that's an interesting question. Let me try to recall what I remember most was even though they were an exceptional team, I felt then that they were very vulnerable and they could be beat. And I knew the team wasn't as invincible as they had portrayed themselves because I knew the players. I knew Michael, I knew Scotty, and I felt very comfortable with the offense and all of the the intricate moving parts of the offense. I really felt comfortable knowing that we had a team that could beat them because we had shooters. We could space the floor. We could space the floor with Dale Curry. 
mm-hmm. myself, Glenn Rice, and we had two players in which Dennis Rodman couldn't guard both of them, which was Vladi and the late Anthony Mason. So mm-hmm. I felt very, very comfortable going in there, provided we could always get the matchup that we needed. And that game, it all came together for us. And I just knew we had an opportunity. So I wasn't like jazzed up to play against them because I, you know, you know, like I knew those guys. I know Phil Jackson. But what I really felt is that we had the chance and we had the team to do it. Uh, obviously, we didn't do it, but I felt good going into that series. And and that's all I want is a, an opportunity to chance. And I felt with one game, possibly we could go back to Charlotte. And, and if we could split at home in Charlotte, I knew that anything could happen in five, six and seven. And I think Michael. Yeah. And, and I think Michael had the sense of urgency of knowing that. And I don't think the rest of our team kind of saw it that way. I, I, I felt Michael knew that if we could split at home when we went back to Charlotte, that five, six, and seven, anything could happen. Why do I say that? It's because Michael would have had to dominate on the offensive end for three games, which I don't know if he could have just dominated like you know the, the young Michael Jordan did because that just provides energy because you're playing every other day. But – you know, that, that's what I felt. I think he understood that. And I, I think he didn't want to get into that type of fight because anything could happen. And he, him and Scotty couldn't, they couldn't control every area, right? They couldn't guard Dale Curry. They couldn't guard Glenn Rice. They couldn't guard maybe myself or something. We could, we could find a way to move the ball around, which, because those two were such, you know, tremendous, you know, perimeter defensive players. Mm. EJ, in a, in a playoff situation, um, if one team has a player, a, particularly a veteran player, who has played for the other team recent, you know, fairly recently, do the coaches tend to pick, I mean, pick your brain in that situation to ask if there are nuances you understand? And I'm asking that specific to playoff series because Larry Brown – Taught, taught me, you know, you have to look at playoff basketball very different from regular season basketball as far as the importance and the sort of evolution of, of all the matchups that doesn't happen in a random Wednesday night one-off game. Mm. Well, yeah, yes, you do. And, you know, and now that I'm, I'm recalling, if you recall in that series, and, and I'm going to answer your question, but what I remember most about that series was, all year they had stuck with the lineup with Luke Longley as the starter. In game three, people forget they started Tony Kukoc. And that's when I knew that they knew we had a chance. Okay, you don't mm-hmm. change your lineup mm-hmm. in the playoffs on the road. <laughs> so Michael and Phil Jackson <laughs> knew, and I knew that they were vulnerable. Now, mm-hmm. to the rest of I don't, I'm not saying that it was, we're smarter or I'm smarter or whatever. I'm just saying Michael and Phil Jackson knew <laughs> mm-hmm. that I was aware of their vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And when they started Tony Kukoc, then I got fired up because I was like, oh, <laughs> they see what I see. Mm. I don't know who else saw it, but I saw it. And Michael, and I give him credit, he played game three with a, an intensity to send a message. Demonic. He was, that day he was mad. (laughs) And, and, and I remember specifically 
he, when I came into the game, he guarded me. I yeah. Okay. And I remember he attacked the ball because his mentality is if he's going to lose, he's going to go down with a fight. So he knew it. Phil Jackson knew it. That's why they started Tony Kukoc. And we had a chance. And I, I wish I could have, you know, I didn't know that. I, I thought maybe Michael and Phil didn't see it. I thought maybe, you know, like most teams, they can hide because they play in the system. And to answer your question, the, the difference between the Bulls and the other teams that are making a playoff run is the Bulls had a system of play. And their system predicated on ball movement, player movement. So they they was very important for them to make sure that the system they found a way to to take advantage of something that you couldn't guard on the other end because of their system of play. I think that's very hard to teach today. That's why you don't see many systems. That's why you see so much isolation basketball today. But back then they had a system, and the system was dictated on what they could ex explore or exploit on the other end. So. Um, but it was interesting. I, I, I felt, I still feel good to that today. <laughs> Rick, I, I feel good about the chances, but we didn't do it. But I, it was, I know they saw it. I know Phil Jackson saw it. And you I know made Michael them saw blink. That, yes. that, that, that game that you guys won made them realize that you weren't scared of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think Michael knew that. I, I just, I just wish we could have pulled it off. And I think it was just probably my, experience when you mm -hmm. see something right you know the coaches can see something the players can see something but once you see it the group has to see it and i i know michael saw it and when he started i've never seen phil do that ever again change his lineup on the road you don't change your lineup on the road in a game three right i mean okay you lose a game at home maybe you don't play well i i, I saw it i saw it during that game that they couldn't guard three perimeter players who could all shoot and that was, and then we had Mason and they couldn't put Rodman on. And Vladi, as you know, was a phenomenal, phenomenal passer. Mm -hmm. So we could play dribble wheeze and backdoor cuts <laughs> and do things. And it was a problem and the Bulls respected it. But to their credit, Michael saw it. That's what he was really mad about because he knew there was a chance. And if given another chance, we were going to find a way to get a good shot. And I felt Glenn Rice and, and, Steph Curry, uh, Steph Curry, Dill Curry <laughs> was, they were terrific shooters and mm -hmm. uh, we had a really good team. And, and Rick, the irony of all this now, like looking into the future in 2020, obviously Michael Jordan owns the Charlotte Hornets. So, you know, on the other side of this from 1998, he's playing the Hornets with the Bulls. Now he owns this team. He's trying to work in this new NBA and build a franchise winner. Mitch Kupchak comes over from the Lakers. It's just the new iteration of the Charlotte Hornets with Michael, you know, at the helm with having this Carolina family type atmosphere that they have going on with new energy. Devontae Graham's a big piece that they brought in and he's been a most improved guy. Like, where are the Charlotte Hornets now as we talk about where they were in 1998 because as a kid that was the highlight I love watching Muggsy Bogues and obviously this playoff run with BJ and those guys but then there's been some obviously Bobcats down periods and the Hornets come back in 2014 but where where are they now as a franchise just covering it I am glad you asked me that and I know from conversations off mic that I've had with BJ he's going to endorse what I'm about to say mm. um the Hornets are, are at an interesting place. When they made the very conscious decision that they couldn't justify re-signing Kemba, they became undoubtedly the most starless team in the league. Yep. 
Um, they have a lot of young, they, I, I thought they were, it was the smart thing to do and they followed up on what they said they do in devoting massive amounts of playing time to those six kids who are in their first or, or second NBA seasons. Yep. They have gotten benefit from that. Yes. Um, we have that, you know, if you don't, if you don't commit to starting PJ Washington as a rookie, you're, you're spinning your wheels. If you don't see that Devonte Graham is dramatically better than anybody thought he was going to be as a high second round pick and, and deploy playing time that way, even after you've signed Tony Rogier, you're spinning your wheels. Mm-hmm. But here's the problem, and it's not a small problem. When I say they're the most starless team in the league, there is literally nobody on this roster good enough to 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 um, keep the keep Mitch Kupchak from taking anybody with a third pick. Mm-hmm. It's kind of scary when you think about it that this team is so you know is entirely helper bees to an extent that whoever the third pick is, no matter what position he plays, no matter how much or little experience he has, he immediately becomes the best chance for them to actually have a player good enough to be part of a team that advances in the playoffs. BJ, would you agree with me that arguably that makes them different from the other 29 franchises in the league? Without question. And I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying and the direction that the franchise is going. I think they have benefited tremendously from the decisions that they've made, especially with the young player. Those are some really good young players there. And, and it'd be interesting to see what they're going to do with this third pick in this year's draft. And Rick, some of the things that have come out, I know you've written about this, that, you know, you've had reports that James Wiseman is who they kind of prize as their, because Mitch Kupchak says they're looking for talent, right? That's the most important thing at at that pick is to just find talent and bring it into the building. But they do have a shooting guard position that they have been trying to, you know, figure out with Dwayne Bacon. And I know that, you know, Rozier moved over to the two at sometimes last year. So Anthony Edwards is there as a two guard. They have depth at point guard, obviously with Rozier and Devontae Graham. So LaMelo might not be the pick. But if he's there at three, they may just take the most talent. I don't think if, that if they're so if they were sold on Melo Ball, and I don't know whether they are or not. That's mm-hmm. not the point. Mm-hmm. I'm saying I do not believe that anything on this roster would keep them from drafting Lamelo Ball if they thought that that was the best player available to them, because that's how far they are from being a team that is actual. You know, like Mitch says, he's just got to get talent and worry about how to fit it together later. Mm. Having said that, I am very confident that all of their behavior suggests that they want Wiseman, that they will I, – I, I would be shocked if it hasn't already happened, if it doesn't happen, that there are conversations between the Hornets and the Timberwolves about the number one pick. Um, mm. my, I'm told that they're bored, and I haven't seen their board. I'm not <laughs> implying I know more than I know. But I'm pretty confident that their board reads Wiseman 2, Edwards 3. Where it gets complicated is if both players, both those players are off the board, they need a they they've got to address the problems that they have interior. Mm. They are BJ, this is another one where I want you to tell me if, if you agree with me. Um they are last in the league in def- defensive rebounding percentage. Hmm. That is the equivalent of consistently being the NFL team in the league that gives up the most sacks. Your margin for error dries up horribly when you are a putrid defensive rebounding team. On top of that, 
with the exception of BJ's client, Biz, <laughs> there is basically no rim protection whatsoever on this right. team. With that in mind, it's not like I said, it's not like they're picking somebody because of what position he plays, but the combination of Wiseman's potential and where he, you know, what they're bad at. It's a logical thing, and if and if Wiseman and, and Edwards are both off the board, it makes you wonder at what point Ekonwu comes into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, now that I'm, I'm I'm listening to you and I'm listening to what you're saying, well, Wiseman is the pick for the uh, Charlotte Hornets. <laughs> not a matter, not a matter of what they want to do; it's a matter of what they can do. Right, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and uh, yes, those. What you said, especially with their interior players, they're going to have to address that, right? Because if you're continuing to give the other team multiple chances to score, it significantly decreases your chances to win the game. So defensively rebounding, you know, you know, complete transparency. You know, I do work with Bismack there in Charlotte, and I think it's a problem that they are aware. When I say they, the Charlotte Hornets and their organization is aware of and Wiseman could definitely fill a lot of those voids that they currently have with this roster as the way it's constructed. Quick break to get a word from our sponsor Nitsa. I know you've heard these words before. I'm not going very far. I'm in a rush. It's too uncomfortable. Sometimes I just forget. Don't kid yourself though. There's no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. If you used any of these excuses or any others, you're just putting yourself at risk of injury or death. In 2018, nearly 10,000 people were unbuckled when they were killed in crashes. That's 43% of people killed in motor vehicle crashes that were not wearing seatbelts. No matter what kind of vehicle you drive, wearing your seatbelt is the best defense in a crash. Even when you sit in the back seat, you still need to buckle up. That goes for when you ride in taxis and use ride-sharing services too. Cops are on the lookout and writing tickets, so why take the risk? Seatbelts save lives, so do the smart thing and buckle up every trip, day or night. Click it or ticket. Back to pushing through hey bj i'm curious have you you know as somebody who has been around both as a player and then some front office work and then as an agent i can't i can i can compare this to another draft hypothetically i mean the the anthony bennett draft maybe but what i'm saying is i cannot remember an nba draft where people were less excited about having the first or second pick. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's been interesting to speak to teams and, you know, I'll just say teams Sure. Uh, that I think there's a lot of unknowns here. The uncertainty of the draft is no longer what it used to be, Rick. Let's make that clear. This isn't something that's new. You've seen this happen for quite some time. I mean, you know, when you got the number one pick, that was a player that you expected to, you know, whether be a savior. Was, Yes, yeah, come Patrick down, Ewing, yeah, Patrick Ewing, or Larry Johnson, or Shaquille O'Neal. Mm-hmm. Now the number one pick isn't the same value as the number one pick some fifteen years ago, and now you're looking. But I at would the- also say that it's le- that this is less than typical years recently. Mm-hmm. This is a yes. dramatically different draft from when Zion and Ja were the top. Yes, it is, and a lot of it is because. One, they didn't complete the season, the collegiate yeah. season. So this will be the most overanalyzed draft <laughs> in the history of the NBA. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when you study long, sometimes you study wrong because you will overanalyze 
you know, the draft and what they, you know, you think these players are going to become. So there's a lot of things and these executives have had a lot of time and these teams are really putting in a lot of pressure because, you know, when you miss a player like a Luka Doncic, Mm. if you miss this player who suddenly goes on or evolves into a star player, it sets your franchise back. So there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of anticipation but most importantly no one wants to be wrong because you never know when you're going to get a chance to draft that star player again and Luka Doncic is a star Giannis Mm. is a star Jokic is a star and you just can't afford to miss a top five player in the draft and they're, they're so young their body of work at this point you know whether it's Wiseman or Edwards or LaMelo or whomever it's not there. So there's a lot of pressure for these executives to get this right. Mm. And this is a, you know, you put in their age, but then you put in COVID and then, you know, play. So now this is what you have. Mm. You realize this is astounding to me that ball and Wiseman have essentially not played a game in the last calendar year. Yeah. (laughs) That's insane. This is, yeah, three games in college. Lamelo's been out since November of last year. Yeah, it's uh, it's so it's a totally different draft. And then Rick, I want to ask just about the the teams that weren't even in the bubble, right? So Charlotte's one of those teams. They've been away from basketball for you know since March twelfth of last year, and I know that they had like a little mini camp going. But what has that been like trying to get the team prepared for the December twenty second start date, and you know get everyone on the same page? I totally understand that the vast majority of the NBA could doesn't care less about the eight teams that weren't part of the restart. <laughs> yeah. But it is a real problem. Um, you know, what I'm saying is I totally get it when the four teams that got to the conference finals are like, you know, shaking their heads about having to restart the season on the 22nd. The other end of that spectrum is you have a significant percentage of this league that has not played a game since March 11th, mm. and they're going crazy. Because mm. remember, it's not just they haven't been allowed to play games. It's that until just recently, players couldn't have any interaction with each other in practice facilities. That mini bubble was really important if for just being able to take, take attendance. Yep. I mean, I remember, you know, asking James Borrego, you know, going into those two weeks, what do you think this is going to be like? And he said, I just need people to be around each other again. <laughs> he said, I have no false expectations. We're not going to do a bunch of installation. He said, I just want to find out if people are still in shape. I want to have some sense of camaraderie. I want, you know, he said, he said it has been incredibly disjointing, mm. you know, to a point that, that players were sneaking, you know, to random gyms somewhere to get a run when the league, you know, which the league frowned on, but it's not like they could very well punish people for <laughs> doing what they do. Mm-hmm. So it's been a mess. And mm. um, Beej, I'm curious with that in mind, I'm curious with you, um, the combination of these extended layoffs and now that now the almost lockout like suddenly sped up, you know, can, you know, um, schedule. We are suddenly going to have um, three weeks to do free agency where you know where it would you know where you normally have two months for things to shake out and and training camp is starting on December first for people who haven't necessarily done much of anything for for some in some cases in nine months mm. how do you think that that will affect 
A, quality of play at the beginning of the season, and B, do you think people are going to get hurt as a result? I think quality of play is going to be affected. And the reason being is because during free agency, with the exception of the what I call the players who are at the top of the the, the top, the top tier players. Those players. Y'all know who signs in forty eight hours, and yes. everybody else. Okay. Yeah. Summer league is very important because you see how quickly, or you try to make the projection on how quickly your player that you drafted or potentially trade players could fit into your roster. Bingo. Minus that, now I think it's going to be a total. This is going to be some type of hodgepodge of like now you're just guessing because mm. many of these teams, as you said, they haven't played or been able to evaluate or watch their players since March 11th. So I think those eight teams are at, are at a significant disadvantage as compared to the other 22 teams who were able to play. That to me is why those eight teams were pushing with such veracity to get something done where they could at least get in the gym to see what they had because those other teams were able to practice, play, and evaluate their young players. Let me tell you how degree. true that is. Mitch Kupchak said, you know, when the, when, the, when, the, when the league was still trying to figure out whether they would allow mini bubbles for the eight teams, Mitch told me that he thought that they were going to lose an entire year's worth of development mm -hmm. relative to, like, the Phoenixes and the – you know, Washington's right. that were, you know, the ed, the fringe teams in the bubble. That's how, that's how significant he thought they were losing, not just, not just with the games, but with a month of practice. Yeah. I mean, like one of the teams, for instance, Memphis, the Memphis yeah. Grizzlies, they were playing significant games with their young players, even though they didn't make the playoffs. That's very significant because now you can rally. It's a morale booster. Mm -hmm. And these other eight teams are at a significant disadvantage. Make no doubt about it. So I think it's very important for these other, those eight teams to somehow utilize these three or four weeks to try to put together a group, put together a team. But I don't think, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to do. And I think it's going to affect their bottom line because how are you going to put together a team for one, you're going to draft a player who you haven't, you know, I didn't even think of it that way until you said it. They haven't even played a game in this calendar year. Mm. Now you don't get a chance to see how they will respond to your system or what have you, their, their coaching. And then you're just going to put them in with the veterans all together. So I think the coaching curve and the learning curve, because you have these young players who are just coming into the NBA for the very first time, along with the veterans. And by the way, guys, we have a real game in like three weeks. <laughs> now, I don't know how you're going to get together. I think it's going to put the players at a physical risk. I think they, I think you're going to have to shorten the minutes and the stretches to like maybe four to five minute stretches so that you can hopefully utilize maybe 10 games in the regular season as a way of conditioning the players because there's no way. Like I'll say this, there's no way that they can be in the physical condition that's necessary to be able to play in an NBA game and then travel. See, what's made it different in the bubble was they didn't have to travel. Now you put in the travel, the stress and uh, that, you don't know how the body is going to affect, uh, is going to react to that. And I think that's going to be significantly different than what you saw in the bubble because, you know, just walking down to practice, <laughs> getting on the elevator is a totally different than having to move across the country. So it'll be interesting to see how 
their bodies actually respond. The players' bodies respond to this playing, which is kind of, you know, it'll be an NBA season. BJ, you will remember this. Um, Kemba and and Biz's rookie season was the, was the last lockout. Mm-hmm. Right. They have both told me extensively how damaging it was to their rookie seasons. Right. That they had basically no – it's not just that they lost summer league. They were basically prohibited from any real interaction with the coaching staff until things got settled around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. They have both told me that, you know, they don't necessarily have anything to compare it to, but that they thought that that was really, really detrimental to the rookie seasons. Rick, it, it is, and we should note it here, that is probably the most damaging thing you can do to a rookie is not allow this young man to interact mm-hmm. with the team, the coaching, get familiar with the system, but most importantly, get familiar with the environment that they're walking into mm-hmm. and not having uh, a, a rookie, especially in this environment without having that transition period, it's going to affect them for years because there's no substitute for what you will learn in summer league. There's no substitute for getting out there, getting the reps, coaching, adjusted to the system, travel and all of the things. So this will be, I feel really bad for these players because I've known this, I've seen this, and you need that time. And now these players don't have that time, and they're gonna their careers are going to suffer because of it. Because they don't they won't have that transition to go to learn how to become a professional. They are great talented players, yes, but there's a period of time that you need to learn how to become a professional, and that is no longer the case and will be taken away from them. Mm. And Rick, one last thing, because I never really got a, a clear answer on this. Were the Hornets upset that they weren't able to go to the bubble? I know that they were in the 10th seed at the time. Only nine teams from the East went down there. So they were pretty close. And I think they ended up with a better record than the Wizards after the eight games uh, and finished higher in the East. So like, was there any push from them on the, on the back end to say, hey, can we try to get into this? Or, or was it just never, never an I option? Would, I would put it this way. I would use the word disappointed rather than upset. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be there. They lobbied to be there. Gotcha. Um, but at the end of the day, and I think this was partially a function of Mitch, you know, be, having been around the league so so long. They, you know, um, I, JB was Borrego was more upset about it, I think, probably than Kubchak was. And I don't mean that Mitch didn't, you know, fight for them to be included. But the, but the bottom line is, Mitch understood, you know, when when the epidemiologists go to you and go, you know, if we add another you know, hundred players and every, and, 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 and all the, all the team personnel that have to come with you to this process, we are putting that much more pressure and it's going to end up bursting the bubble. So what I'm getting at is they wanted to be there. They felt like they deserve to be there as much as, you know, you know, the wizards did for instance, Mm -hmm. but it's not like they, it's not like they were much more upset that there wasn't a plan in place for to come up with alternative ways for them to function as a team than they were whether or not they went to Orlando. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, uh, Rick, we appreciate you coming on the show. We appreciate you uh, catching up with BJ and sharing some of these stories and letting us know what's going on with the Hornets and teams outside the bubble. Uh, we'd love to have you come back on during the season and let us know how things are going. But again, Rick Pinnell, Charlotte Observer, thanks so much for coming on Pushing Through. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Rick, thank you, buddy. Man, it's great. How's that <laughs> golf game? How's your golf game? I see your hat. How's your golf game? I... 
I don't play golf at all. 